Welcome to the Future of Life Institute podcast. My name is Gus Docker, and I'm here with Mark Brockle. Mark, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Gus. Mark is my colleague at, at FLI, and he's the director of policy. Uh, maybe you can tell us about this AI safety summit in the UK that you're attending right now. Definitely. We're, I mean, it's hugely exciting and I think quite a big moment for AI governance. Uh, there's been lots of uh, articles coming out in the lead up to it, lots of, I think, attention on social media. Um, and we just had day one. We're recording this on the morning of day two of the summit. So I can't give the full details because um, it hasn't fully happened yet. Um, but I think there's already some um, exciting things to report. There were 28 countries present and they released a statement yesterday in which they released a shared understanding around uh, the potential catastrophic risks of AI. Um, and I think that's a milestone that we haven't uh, seen before. And we saw some announcements sort of on the sidelines of the summit. So we had the UK already announced their frontier task force. Um, but now there's also um, a US AI Safety Institute um, that the Secretary of Commerce announced yesterday at the summit. And I think it's it, it shows like a, a growing movement towards nations doing their own AI safety research and sort of taking more ownership of that into the public sector. Um, so I think that's that's also a huge development. And FLI, uh, Tim Schreier, uh, one of our other colleagues, he put out some recommendations uh, back in September for the summit. And one key thing we said is given the pace of the technology and the development, we need to make sure that the next summit happens in six months time. Uh, and I'm super happy that the Brits uh, agreed to that and they got South Korea to host the next summit in six months, then um, France in a year's time. Uh, so those are both confirmed. And I saw a rumor this morning that Canada might be up in 18 months. So I think it's really exciting to see that um, this is not just a one-off event, but it's uh, becoming uh, a trajectory and a process um, that hopefully will lead us to um, a safer world. This sounds fantastic. Uh, this sounds pretty positive uh, above my expectations. What, what, about, um, what about the role of China at the summit? Uh, so they were... There, not there, there, I think in the weeks leading up to it. And there was a lot of back and forth. Um, FLI strongly recommended that China w would be involved. We feel that AI safety is an, and, and sort of risks of loss of control, risks of misuse are global risks that um, I think we can find common ground on with China, even though there might be some elements of AI policy or many elements of AI policy that we can't. That doesn't mean that you, you can't um, also have meetings with, with the Chinese government. Um, and in the end, um, they were invited uh, un until I think three days ago, still only for day one. Uh, but they now also get to be there for the second day, um, which is the day that is in many ways more important because it has a smaller number of participants. Um, and uh, it's also where the prime minister himself, uh, Sunak, will be chairing. And um, yeah, I think it's really great that the Chinese government is involved at this level and is on a podium together with the United States, which we saw yesterday at the summit. We see, saw both China and the US um, sharing a podium. And I think had, had, let's say, Beijing hosted this or had DC hosted this, you wouldn't have seen that dynamic. So I think that is also sort of an exciting piece. And I think also the thing that really sets this summit apart from any other AI discussion. So what, what's the significance of the symbolism there? How much does, does something like that mean, sharing a stage together? 
I mean, you see a lot of competition emerging between governments on who can do the best AI regulation and who is defining the the, the, the technology. You, I mean, you saw the EU come out very early with its AI Act, uh, and then I think some unease in DC about sort of is this a repeat of data privacy, where the EU developed a law and sort of US states copied it, and sort of the US was was sort of left behind and, and didn't have much influence in shaping that. So I think there was, I mean, I think that in part helped spur things like the Insight Fora in, 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 in the U.S. Congress, where Senate Majority Leader Schumer brought together lots of experts and uh, where Max Tegmark, our president, participated. And you saw earlier this week on Monday, Biden come out with an executive order uh, regulating uh, artificial intelligence and putting down some, um, yeah, I think, first significant um, rules. So that's an added element of, of um, government involvement. And then China had already developed um, its own rules earlier in the year, uh, has also put, put them out uh, over the course of this year. So having the US and China both in the room means that in that competition, hopefully you can get a degree of convergence as well and you avoid separate processes where China goes off on one end and tries to mobilize a group of nations and the US goes off on another. I think like given the importance of the issue and the importance of global coherence and enforcement, we can't really afford having two or three different processes that exist side by side. So some organizations at the summit are interested in what's called responsible scaling of frontier models. Is that the regulatory approach that that most are in favor of? And, And what do you think of this approach? I think the approach gained a lot of ground in the weeks before the summit and then sort of did a bit of a belly flop uh, the week before, um, where I think there was a lot of pushback. Uh, and I think, I mean, Twitter was full of pushback and memes um, where people were suggesting that adding the adjective responsible in front of scaling uh, doesn't suddenly <laughs> give you AI safety. And I think that it, that is a, an important message, uh, one I agree with. I mean, if the emphasis here is on responsible and if, if that is made to mean something, I think it can be quite good. And I think um, a company like Anthropic putting out four AI safety levels saying, OK, um, if someone uh, independently verifies that the models that we're going to put out um, have significant risk of misuse, then we won't put them out uh, and won't deploy them. I think that that is a helpful commitment. It will help policymakers define how to like set rules. Um, so I think it's great that companies participate in that. But it's also a very narrow approach to AI governance. And um, what we've done is we've put out some analysis um, just in the days leading up to the summit, and it was published um, yesterday. And you can find it on futureoflife.org slash SSP. And um, that get, takes you to a comparison table uh, which compares, for example, the Anthropic proposal, but also many governance proposals, the EU AI Act, the Biden Executive Order, um, various other um, proposals put out by industry. And you can see what elements they do have, and but more importantly, I think, what elements they don't have. Um, for example, responsible scaling doesn't include a mandate to register your AI model. It doesn't uh, say anything about who's liable if you cause massive harm with your system. And those are sort of important elements of policy that we also need. Um, so that's really critical as we sort of assess responsible scaling uh, and maybe expand it a little bit. 
And I think the companies themselves, in at least in my analysis, would probably want that as well. I think they realize that they're in a com- like they're in a competitive environment. They can like be committed to safety also at a personal level, at a company level. But there's limits to that because ultimately they also need to make a profit to stay afloat. That means that to ensure a level playing field, you need some sort of enforced regulation. And some of that will have to come from policymakers and not from the companies or their policies. Yeah, some proponents of responsible scaling frame this as the pragmatic choice, the, the politically feasible approach to regulation. So even though we might not get, we might wish that we could get something more comprehensive, we probably can't. And so we should go for, for the more pragmatic choice. What do you, what do you think about that? I think the, the policy environment is changing very, very rapidly. If you told me in February, the month before we put out our open letter, that I would be sitting here in the UK in November at a government summit about AI safety, uh, and there would be three more coming in, in 18 months, I, like I would have laughed you out of the room. So I think g- given that all of this is happening and you see this dynamism and you see policymakers really stepping up like two or three, like going into sort of uh, an extra gear. Um, I'm not sure if now is the time for pragmatism. I think we can be, we can be ambitious at the moment. We can um, go much further than like the absolute lowest common denominator. And I think we also have an obligation to encourage policymakers, companies, academics to, to be ambitious. It certainly has been interesting to see King Charles and President Biden talk about AI safety, which I just hadn't seen coming uh, if, if, even, even a year ago. When, when we look back, do you think we'll see this summit as a turning point for AI safety? I know it's early days. I know it's, it's perhaps too early to declare victory, but it, it sounds pretty positive, especially with the commitments to host further summits and to, to get something done here. Yeah, I think maybe just to pick up on what you said earlier about sort of Biden coming out to talk about AI safety and, and King Charles talking about AI safety. I was at the, um, a roundtable organized by the British Embassy in Washington two weeks ago, where also like the whole British diplomatic system like was explaining to American agencies, you know, what AI safety is, what their vision was for the summit. And um, I haven't seen all the other embassies of the UK doing this in the other 27 countries, but I'm sure it's similar things has, have happened. And I think it really shows in a way the power of a bureaucracy when it does move into action is that you just have a multiplier effect that is so much larger than you can achieve as a sort of small community of academics or people that are concerned about this issue. In terms of whether this summit is a turning point, I'd like to think so. I mean, it's it's pretty exciting that we had our FLI conference back in 2015 on AI safety, which was arguably the first. Uh, and now to see this at a government level, I think is a is a milestone. But it also sh- like despite the sort of pomp and ceremony and the king being there, we shouldn't forget that like that doesn't create enforcement agencies or hard law. And I think that's still work that needs to be done. And I think it's also left for the next summit to define, yeah, can we get to hard international agreements, um, the establishment of agencies? So I think we can be pleased, um, but we shouldn't, also shouldn't celebrate uh, everything yet. Yeah, I, I guess we have seen before, and now I'm thinking about uh, climate change, uh, a lot of strong rhetoric, but perhaps not a lot of uh, political action following up uh, on, the, on that rhetoric, or at least, uh, in my opinion, not enough. To what extent are governments paying attention to, to AI at, at the moment? Where would you rank this uh, in, in the kind of in a ranked list of, of issues? 
it's safe to say that AI governance showed up on the list of issues. And um, it's like where previously this was being discussed only by civil servants at a sort of expert level. Now it's sometimes reached the head of state or the head of government. So that's that's pretty impressive. Um, then again, there's also other issues that governments need to worry about. And um, I mean, the, the conflict in Israel-Gaza is a good example of something that's currently dominating global headlines. And yeah, I, I find it hard to provide a perfect ranking, but um, it's entered the top five, I think. When you when you talk to policymakers and government officials, are they managing to keep up with the pace of AI development? This this might be an, an enormous task because I think even people who work on on AI are have trouble keeping up. So, yeah, how how informed are policymakers, and and how does this influence uh, what's politically possible? I've seen a lot of pleas for people saying like, please stop publishing articles. Can we please stop doing stuff? Like, I need a break. I need to read. So I think that's yeah. I think that feeling of overwhelm is with everyone working in AI governance. Can policymakers keep up? I mean, they'll they'll struggle to keep up with the pace of any development. I mean, they're also only people and they have a lot of responsibilities to take care of in a week. But I think it is really impressive to see people who have been engaging deeply with AI in various jurisdictions really get to grips with it. Um, I think a really good example is Dragos Tudoraka, who's the um, MEP from Romania. That's one of the co-leaders on the AI Act. Uh, together with Brando Benefi from from Italy, and they have been like working on this proposal ever since it was introduced back in May 2021, April 2021, uh, into the Parliament by the European Commission. And like it, it's it's obvious how much their understanding has grown of the issue, how much more sophisticated the debate has grown, how much clearer they have the clearer their perspective has become of the risks. Um, and I think you can say something similar about. Um, the discussions that maybe um, the U.S. Congress was having on AI six months ago to now where you see, okay, they've had a number of briefings and people are talking about, do we need licensing? Yes or no. Uh, do we need registration? Do we need monitoring of computational clusters? And I think that's that's a whole level of sophistication that didn't exist half a year ago. And so, yeah, I think you do see a lot of development. For non-insiders, could you give us an overview of the landscape of AI policy in, in Brussels and in Washington? This is a tall order. I think in Brussels, I think you have the traditional left-right axis where like the left will be more supportive of government intervention, more worried about the harms. The right wants to sort of ensure that the role of governments is relatively limited and, and I think are more concerned about innovation. The EU, given its history, is also ultimately regulating a market. I mean, that's uh, what they know to do and, and, and what they've done for many decades. And they think less about industrial policy, putting lots of money behind the technology or geopolitics because the EU doesn't have an army. So the perspective is in a way quite narrow and quite focused on, on limitations. And I think a lot of the debate in, in Brussels is around the role of Big players, big tech, to what extent do we do we limit them and the role of AI in national security? Can you have real-time biometric surveillance? Under what conditions? For what crimes? I think those are, I think, two additional sort of axes, the role of big tech and, and, and sort of the role of AI in national security that are defining the, the policy landscape in Brussels. In DC, I think you don't see that 
level of detail yet because it's still quite early days and there isn't a law, a legal proposal uh, um, or a bill introduced yet that everyone has converged around. There are numbers, there are bills floating around, but there isn't one game in town that everyone is trying to define a position on yet. And I think you see a development in US, I think, national debate around the role of social media in public life um, and whether that's a good or a bad thing. And, and I think potentially a realization on, with both the Republican Party and the Democratic Party that they should have intervened earlier um, in social media and there should have been a role for government there. Um, and I think people are trying to draw lessons from that experience for AI. Yeah, I don't think everyone's certain yet on how they want to go and do that. Yeah, what explains this difference between the EU and the US, where the EU seems to be in, in front on the regulation, which which is kind of funny since the US has most of the large uh, AI corporations. Yeah, what explains this? Why is this uh, how things are? I find that hard to pinpoint that exactly. I mean, in a way, it might be a little bit random. Uh, I think there is an element in of... of l- accident or luck in that the European Parliament set up this uh, thematic committee on AI a few years ago. And I, those discussions, I think, led to an early awareness that, that legal action might be necessary. And I think it's also maybe a function of the electoral cycle, if you compare that between the US and the EU, where the US, of course, has midterms, every four years elects a new president, whereas the European Parliament only get, gets elected every five years. And we're currently at the very end of that electoral cycle, like the elections are in in spring uh, next year. So no one had to worry too much about sort of being re-elected for a while. I think there was a lot of deep focus on sort of policy. And I mean, there is, of course, this meme in European politics that many people will send their national politicians to Brussels if um, they don't want, if they want to get rid of them. Um, And... In a way, Brussels is just still less visible than maybe politics in Berlin or politics in Paris uh, to French or German people. And that does mean that people are maybe able to respond to these technological developments in and, and sort of have more time to think and consider and contemplate them than maybe in some national political environments. It's surprising to me that the US isn't in front on regulation. And this is this is kind of you can set aside whether you're you're pro uh, a kind of comprehensive regulation or whether you want to you want a lighter touch regulation. It's just that it would seem obvious to me that the that the country that's in front uh, on on the technology side would also be in front on the regulation side. I, I guess that's that's just not how things are. Do you think the U.S. government can figure out who is responsible for regulating AI? Who internally within the government? I mean, yeah. I mean, maybe just to go back to that. Surprise. I mean, I think there is a mentality uh, in Silicon Valley to sort of go fast and break things. And I think that that has yielded lots of companies, innovation, GDP growth for the United States. So I think it's not like entirely uh, overwhelmingly surprising that there is no regulation. I mean, I think that it's a business model that has worked well for, for the country. But we do see a changing world where I think it's not so obvious anymore, like it has been for at least in the 90s and the, the early 2000s, that the US was the only dominant rule setter. And I think the US is now waking up to the fact that, I mean, the EU and its data privacy regulation, but uh, most certainly also the Chinese in, in, in developing standards in, in technologies, are is presenting rival options. And um, that means that 
there may be more need for U.S. regulation and sort of U.S. leadership if they want to influence the direction of this technology than there has been before. So I think I like I think that is now changing, and and that might lead to more surprise, if you will, on sort of the yeah where in the U.S. government this needs to sit. Um, I mean, that's a really tough question. And I think it's become harder and harder in the US system to introduce new agencies and set up new authorities. The executive order assigns most of the enforcement responsibility to NIST, um, the National Institute for Standards and Technology. That agency can't enforce anything. um, So that is somewhat problematic. And I think also, ideally, something that either we change or we think about, is there another um, entity maybe within the Department of Energy that does have that enforcement authority um, and can make sure that rules that are eventually passed by Congress, um, that people also abide by them and, and sort of we, we take the laggards along. How much do we know about what's happening in China and, and India on the policy side? I'm not a China expert or an, um, and I know far less about Chinese AI policy than I do about um, the EU or the US. Then again, I think we, we've seen a willingness with the Chinese government to regulate and they've introduced uh, a number of guidelines and rules also about ensuring that any outputs of AI models are in line with the values that the Chinese government wants to see. And around the AI summit where um, China was um, or is participating, we also saw a statement released by Chinese and uh, Western academics where the Chinese delegation and participants also really uh, backed this concept of, of regulating artificial intelligence. And in a way, I think it, it, it shows that the outlier at this point is, is the US. Um, and I think the executive order to some extent remedies that. But yeah, the China, China has put hard law onto the books. And so, so, I mean, the EU is about to do the same. Yeah, maybe we should actually talk about this executive order. What, what's what's the content of it? Uh, it's early days and we've done some analysis, um, but it requires things like red teaming on, on the part of the companies um, and also um, mandates that the companies share that information and the results of that red teaming with the US government. It talks about training runs in, initiated by foreign entities and making sure that, uh, again, the US government is notified of those large training runs. But it also goes into things like the role of AI in housing, the role of AI in uh, employment, uh, in education, making sure that people have the right skills. Uh, so it's it's a really wide ranging um, executive order. And what I quite like about it is that it, in a way, puts to bed this endless ethics versus safety debate because it shows that you can have one executive order that, in a way, addresses all of the whole range of risks and harms from AI. Um, and you don't have to have an instrument that just worries about one side of it. And I think the AI Act in, in, in the EU shows something very similar in that it also tries to deal with both risks from AI in, uh, as it comes to integrating them in critical infrastructure or in hiring algorithms and uh, what happens with the most advanced uh, general purpose uh, slash frontier models. So I think we should talk about some lines of skepticism about AI policy. And one of the the ones I, I hear most often is that AI policy will just be too slow to matter. So 
the systems will have moved on whenever the legislation is is implemented. Now, I we just talked about how things are moving pretty fast and perhaps faster than they have in the past. But are you, are you hopeful that policy will, will move fast enough in, in general to keep up with the pace of AI? So you're speaking to the head of policy. So I'm going to obviously defend uh, the, the role of policy. And also, I mean, I completely grant that um, this is not the only thing that we need to do. And we also need to work out the, the technical details of how to make these systems safer or how to build safe AI. And like that, I think, doesn't mean that you sort of drop policy or stop doing it. I think that the accelerating pace of governments engaging with AI governance is really promising. And I think shows that much more is possible than people maybe would have assumed or would have thought a year ago. So I think that's one. But I grant that policy moves at a certain pace, especially in democratic countries where um, things need to be deliberated. Everyone gets to put in their perspective. Um, that's what usually leads to better policies than um, if a dictator would just lay them down. Um, but it does mean that you are like that you are under certain constraints and you can't maybe move as fast as you would like. Does that mean that if you get super harmful, out of control AI sooner than policymakers are ready for it, that you have a potentially massive problem? Yes, you, that that is true. Does that mean that you then stop working on it on on like because there is that probability, however high you think it is, like a world ending event would come before the policy is in place? Well, I, I mean that doesn't seem rational to me either. I think you you do want to ensure that you you put the policies on the books. You hope that they're in in time, and you make sure that you also pursue other um, actions. Yeah, one point you've made is that we are. We're racing towards advanced AI now, and we want to have policies in place before we hit a point where we, we are unable to act. So we can't, we, we can't begin thinking about policy when we are, when we are say, one year away from, from advanced AI. And this is a meme that does exist with many people working on AI safety, uh, especially when I joined FLI um, two, two and a half years ago. I was meeting a lot of people that said, well, like this whole policy thing, like let's, let's wait for a couple of years. Uh, let's do lots more research and then uh, let's develop AI systems. And just when they get like terribly dangerous, that's when we call the government and we put out one academic article on, say, archive, and we tell everyone uh, on the internet that this is where the governments need to step in and then we have the problem solved. And I think I've, I've like, I find that deeply frustrating because that's not how governments tend to work. Governments need a lot of time. Especially, like as we talked about, I mean, democratic governments need time to deliberate, but also to build a bureaucracy or to set up a department that doesn't happen overnight. Um, and you need to hire experts and um, build that government capacity way before you get to the cliff edge. This is why I think it's super important to start doing this work and to make sure you do that way before you reach uh, like a point of no return. Yeah, maybe this instinct to wait and and do more research comes from a worry about the regulation we we then do implement being too being kind of rushed and uh, and not polished and and perhaps not informed. This is kind of the opposite question of what I just asked. You worried that we are rushing towards regulation now before we have a full overview of of AI risks. I think we need to ask ourselves what we want AI for, and um, I think this doesn't happen enough. It's something that um, our executive director, Anthony Aguirre, in a, in a recent paper, also uh, Closing the Gate, also highlighted. 
you see, see things like AlphaFold, where DeepMind developed a system that can predict protein folding that's hugely important to, to uh, biology um, that doesn't require the sort of scaling that we've seen coming out of uh, Meta or um, OpenAI or Anthropic. And as we put in regulation that potentially harms scaling, um, or potentially makes it more difficult to build ever bigger black boxes that you can commercialize um, and delays poten potential benefits that we will discover around those. I mean, okay, yes, that is that is a potential downside. I, I grant you that. But as long as we can still define specific benefits that we want from AI in narrow fields, such as biology um, or healthcare or, um, I don't know, transportation, uh, instead of driving cars, then we probably can reap most of the benefits from AI developments um, in in ways that aren't going to be affected by regulatory efforts that target the most risky systems. So in many ways, I think you can have your cake and eat it. Yeah, we can imagine systems that are highly capable in more narrow domains and therefore do not pose the same risks of losing control of, of the systems that, that more general systems might do. Okay, here's another skeptical uh, question for you. So you could say OpenAI, DeepMind, Anthropic, and, and so on. These, these top AI, uh, AGI corporations are interested in regulation because they want to capture the, that regulation and then make it beneficial for themselves and keep out the competition. How much do you worry about this? I worry about this somewhat. I think to some extent it is a legitimate concern that we need to worry about. I do also compare AI policy to other policy areas. I mean, if you think of pharmaceuticals, we don't like we've moved beyond the world where anyone could just develop a potion um, and sell it to someone else and be like, "Oh, this will make your skin glow or make your hair grow back." Um, and we've we've put regu regulation and licensing in, in place so that if you like get prescribed some sort of medication, you know that it tends to work or at least there's some evidence based around it. And that has led to some concentration, right? Your grandma can't put out her potion anymore as, uh, and claim um, that it's beneficial um, in, in a medical way. So, I mean, I think we've accepted in that domain some costs to society uh, and some limits and some, some concentration because we think the benefits are worth it. And I think we need to strike that balance in AI as well, where, yes, it is, it is a trade-off, sure. And people will have different opinions about that trade-off. Um, but I think if we want to protect our societies, we do need some entities that we can hold responsible. Um, and this might be where collaboration is going to be really important. Can we build an institution where uh, we have democratic oversight, we have participation of um, researchers from different countries who get access to systems or maybe who build systems uh, collectively um, so that you still can report about the systems transparently. You can make sure that um, all the information and power is controlled within private sector entities, but you still maintain some level of oversight that is much more powerful than just like a free-for-all world. If top AI corporations want to collaborate about uh, around slowing down or implementing safety policies, could they be prevented from doing so by antitrust regulation? This is a really good question, and we would need an antitrust lawyer to look into that, but I, I, I don't feel expert enough to answer it. Okay. 
then let's talk about uh, the the EU AI Act, where you I, I at least perceive you as an expert. Um, how is this act set up? What is it trying to achieve? So when the EU AI Act was introduced, it was uh, introduced to um, identify different AI systems and what kind of risks they carry. So systems that allow you to build a social scoring system for your government or your uh, municipality, where, for example, if you cross a red light in Copenhagen, you would lose 10 points. But if you would uh, take care of um, your elderly relative, gain five, um, those are prohibited. Similarly, subliminal manipulation uh, is a prohibited application. So those are um, examples of things that, that the AI Act prohibits. Then the AI Act also identifies a number of um, AI applications as high risk. So there's a, a list under the AI Act of um, areas or sectors, such as, for example, the incorporation of AI in critical infrastructure or the um, incorporation of AI in hiring decisions. Um, where you're allowed to use it, but if you do, you have to show what data sets went into your system. Is there? Um, did you take any measures against bias? Uh, what risks do you see? Um, what mitigation measures have you taken? So there's a, a burden on you to show that you've um, uh, taken appropriate safeguards. Um, and it's not that all AI systems that are used in those sectors are going are going to be regulated under the latest compromise. Um, it's only those that pose particularly severe risks in those sectors that, that are in scope. Um, and then anything else um, is, is seen as low risk. Um, and uh, there will be some voluntary guidance that companies can follow if they have a low risk application. But other than that, they are um, free to do whatever they want and they're not really touched by, by the AI Act. What would be some, some examples of something that's in scope of the Act versus something that's out of scope? Yeah, so uh, like um, a hiring algorithm is, is a good example of something that's that's in scope. Uh, biometric identification systems uh, used by the police um, is, is, is something that's in scope um, where there's you need to satisfy a number of criteria to be able to, to use that. And, and um, there's some that still argue that uh, it shouldn't be allowed in any case. Then examples of things that w- wouldn't be in scope is... AI used in navigation, for example, in Google Maps, um, where um, the AI Act really doesn't touch it um, at all. For example, when it comes to generating content, uh, such as images or or voice or um, text, you have to disclose that it is generated by an AI system. But other other than that, you also don't have to abide by any further requirements beyond the sort of message that this was generated by AI. Um, So that um, is an example of where where the act only has a very light touch approach. Yeah, I imagine such a such an act is is a it's a product of compromise. It's being stretched by one uh, faction and and pulled in another direction by another faction. And you know, wh- wh- what do you what do you think of the act as it's as it stands now? What are the pros? What are the cons in in your view? Yeah, I mean, it, it is definitely uh, a sausage that's being produced by 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 many, and it, I mean, obviously, like knowing how the sausage gets made is is, is not something you, you you often want to know or should should be known. I think one thing that FLI asked for from the very beginning was making sure that more general systems um, such as GPT four, those models are also regulated, um, and that the burden on identifying the risks that those systems pose is really placed on the big players at the source of the value chain and not towards the end of it. Initially, because of the application-based approach of the act, if you are a small medium enterprise or entity, let's say a hospital, 
and you take uh, a chatbot um, and build or build a chatbot on top of GPT-4 um, to do your contact with your patients, then you as a hospital are liable for anything and everything that the system um, outputs, even though you might not understand what application you have bought. And I think making sure that, that responsibility is allocated in the right place is something we've we, yeah we've spoken up about. And I think uh, we now also see that the act is updated in that way. But on the sort of process of making the act, I think it's important that people realize that the reason it takes a very long time and the reason that uh, it sometimes gets stretched in, in, in different ways is most often because the major companies from, from the US have a lot of lobbyists and will try and pull it in one direction or another and delay it. Um, and I think that, yeah, uh, I guess this is to be expected, but the EU takes a lot of blame for what is ultimately caused by corporate lobbying, um, namely delays or, or complicated law with exemptions. Um, and I think for better or for worse, the, the lawmakers involved are trying their best to have and introduce the first ever AI law um, that is as good as possible, uh, but it is often affected by, by this corporate influence. Is it a problem, in your opinion, that the EU AI Act does not regulate military applications? No. One of the other projects that we're working on is a treaty on autonomous weapons and the issue of autonomous autonomy and weapon systems. And you see a lot of division still within NATO and within European Union members of NATO. And if you would have introduced milit- like guidelines or rules for military applications in this law, I don't think you would have reached any agreement. So I think it does make sense to exempt it so that you can focus on what you can agree on uh, as you navigate military applications. One thing that I think is a mistake is that if the, the law only regulates AI applications that you put on the market in Europe. So if you're a European company and you're based in Slovakia and you export to Uganda, say, you can do whatever you want and you don't have to abide by any element of the AI Act, even though your product is made in Europe. And I think that is problematic because that I, th- I can see that technology getting incorporated in, for example, uh, surveillance where, yeah, it isn't quite sort of military applications, but I think it does um, contribute to authoritarianism and to instability potentially in, in, in this world um, where I think the EU AI Act could have done more. How is the act enforced? I, I've heard some complaints that there isn't enough third party enforcement of, of, uh, of compliance with the act. Yeah, it's, so there is a, a regime for third-party uh, auditing that the Act produces, uh, but it's a very limited number of applications that are covered by that, making sure that that third-party auditing is introduced for the yeah, general-purpose AI systems, the GPT-4s plus of this world, um, and that that isn't left to some independent evaluators of limited status uh, without any sort of rules or guidelines or even to the companies themselves. Um, And I think within the AI safety community, we often hear this word evals, uh, which I, if I can put this out on this podcast, that I really hope that word dies very quickly. I don't understand why you would abbreviate the word evaluations, but uh, it also is is a rather meaningless term because, I mean, I can evaluate your height and say that you're an X height, but then have I evaluated the right thing? And I think an audit, and because we can we see comparisons from the financial sector, for example, is a much better defined concept. Um, and at least to me, means that there's an independent third party 
and you have a set of metrics that that independent third party evaluates you against and that you as a company can't influence. And I think we really need to move to that um, in AI governance and away from, from this thing called evals. You would still need some research on developing these metrics. And I guess there the, the, you could take inspiration from the research that's being done on evaluations, which are kind of um, ideas about finding out in which cases are systems dangerous and how they might be dangerous. So it might not be fully incompatible, these two approaches. Oh, no, definitely. I mean, the work itself is super important. And I think we definitely need lots more of that. Uh, but I think we need to also understand the, the power dynamics that are at play here. It's not just about developing the concept and the metrics and the benchmarks, but making sure that people actually meet them, abide by them and get punished if they don't. And that's arguably not something you can have an in, like an evaluator, a random sort of evaluator without any status achieved. How much does the EU AI Act matter, given that most of the cutting-edge AI activity is in the US? I think policymakers look at other policymakers when they uh, start to develop any legislation. And I think the EU AI Act matters because it actually gives an example and a blueprint of how you can do this thing. And it, yeah, if you're a, a, a low-level um, civil servant and you're given the task of writing your legislation in the US say, um, you're going to have a, a close look at what other people have written and you're going to end up with the EU AI Act because it in many ways is the only game in town. There is also only so many ways you can like define a rule about transparency. You're going to run, run out of ways to write this down in law. So um, yes, yeah, some of the elements of policy, I think there will be divergence, there will be different options. But I think yeah, for some basic concepts, I think the EU will have probably arrived at some compromise or solution that many will be tempted to adopt. And you see, for example, in the Brazilian Senate, uh, a law has been introduced that copies many, many elements of the EU AI Act. And if companies want to sell their products outside of the US and you see more and more jurisdictions adopting elements or all of the EU AI Act, I think the incentive for them to abide by it by it or by parts of it becomes greater and that becomes even more so if individual u.s states adopt elements of the act as we saw with data privacy laws where california copied the framework of the eu so most of the ai development um, or leading ai development currently happens in the u.s but that doesn't mean that that the eu bill doesn't have impact how do you think it, it plays in U.S. politics if you if you are accused, so to speak, of, of taking inspiration from the Europeans? You probably don't want to say that you've taken inspiration from the Europeans. And uh, I mean, you see that also around this summit now, right? Like the um, in the same week, uh, both the U.K. government saying they are leading the field on AI regulation. Look at our summit. And you see Biden saying we're leading the field in AI because look at our executive order. So I think that's part of the game. Um, and it should also be possible, I think, to to define a national response within certain limits um, where, where you work towards convergence. And the EU and the United States together have a, a trade and technology council where they meet twice, twice a year and discuss AI. Um, and they've just published a draft list of terminology in AI and definitions in AI. And that, I think, shows that, um, yeah, there are just a lot of concepts and, and, and things that, that will be shared um, across the world and across multiple jurisdictions. 
And um, in, when we develop benchmarks and standardization, a lot of that will be held in common, even though, um, yeah, there might still be a national AI policy or a bill that diverges in, in part. If we look beyond the EU AI Act and just at regulation in general, why do you worry more about underregulation than overregulation? I think it's very hard to, once you have a bill on the books covering a certain area, to say that, oops, we've missed something really big. Uh, we're going to have to redo this, guys, um, and uh, introduce a new AI bill, which then means you are left without the sort of oomph and, and, and big moment and celebration of the fact that, that this is the first AI law. No, this, is, this was the second rev- revised edition, but it's still needs lots of time. It doesn't get you any press coverage because everyone like feels it's already been done. Um, like That's super, super hard. Whereas I think ha- having sort of made sure that we are uh, safe and sort of some of the harms that, that we fear don't materialize, that slowing down AI development and it meaning that some of the potential benefits are o- only able to sort of materialize later uh, once we decide that, okay, that was really stupid and it took us a couple of decades, but we had to roll that back to make this possible. To me, seems like a much better approach. Yes, we will lose out on some benefits, but we don't, yeah, we also sort of didn't have to worry about some of the worst harms that, that we're currently discussing. I think, I think the worry here from the, um, let's call it um, anti-regulation side, is that these regulations will stay in place long after they've served their, they've, they've stopped being useful. Um, and regulations are, are difficult to get rid of. And so this idea of rolling it back once we, we, we feel like we've overstepped, it might be more difficult than, than we imagine. True, but I think we also need to really take a frank look at what the up and downside risks uh, and benefits are here. If, if we are concerned about a substantial risk of extinction, then um, I think we, we, we should be willing to um, tolerate some delay um, at least that would be my take. Okay, let's talk more about U.S. legislation. So we, we talked about the executive order. There's also a Schumer bill. What, what's, what's the content of the Schumer bill? How kind of fleshed out is this? My impression when doing the research is that I couldn't find that much uh, U.S. kind of uh, regulation uh, that was fleshed out. What, what do we know about the Schumer bill? We know very little about the Schumer bill um, because it doesn't exist yet. Um, there is a set of insight fora that are being organized where um, Senate Majority Leader Schumer brings together various experts to talk about um, AI policy and sort of uh, elements of it to try and inform his bill. And you see other senators and other members of Congress come out with proposals. So Ted Lieu came out in, Cong- in, in the House of Representatives with a proposal for an agency uh, we saw Senator Hawley and Blumenthal come out with a proposal where they talked about the need for a license for certain types of models, um, registration obligations. So I think those draft proposals uh, will likely influence uh, what ends up in the final bill, but it's not there yet. So uh, I think we're going to have to wait and see a little bit. What about the AI Bill of Rights that was introduced, I think, some time ago now? Uh, what's the status on that? This exists. And uh, so this is a a piece of uh, policy that the U.S. federal government has imposed on itself in a way. It's asking the U.S. federal agencies to um, look at that Bill of Rights and and, and its guidance as they define and and introduce algorithms, for example. 
And I, I'm from the Netherlands, where um, the Dutch political debate has been dominated by something that's now become known as the Dutch child benefit scandal, uh, where um, your child benefits, uh, if you if you have a child um, and have a, a lower income, were defined um, by an algorithm, an algorithm that still hasn't been made public. Um, but we do know that things like someone's second nationality fed into that algorithm and um, whether or not the algorithm actually found you at fault um, was often deeply biased or even, um, um, I mean, there were a, a huge number of errors where people really had, there was absolutely no grounds for including them on the ultimate fraud list that the algorithm generated. Um, but it did mean that some people, once they did end up on that fraud list generated by the algorithm, were forced to pay back all of their tax uh, rebates or benefits over um, nine, eight, ten years, a ten-year period at once um, with interest. Uh, it forced some people to emigrate and leave the country. Child protection services sometimes took children away because families were unable to provide for, for their children after these measures had been taken. Uh, some people committed suicide because of uh, ending up in that situation. And I think the AI Bill of Rights seems to me like a great proposal to try and at least mitigate those kind of harms that um, are, yeah, the government can or risks bringing over itself or sort of imposing on its people by uh, rushing to introduce, yeah, digitalization in areas where uh, that hasn't been thought through or not all considerations have been properly thought about. Um, I mean, there's other examples from other countries. You have the Postmaster scandal in the UK where uh, people running post offices were uh, accused of committing fraud when they hadn't. Um, there's the robo-debt scandal in uh, Australia. So these are all cases that I think the USAI Bill of Rights is trying to prevent happening in the US. And the US government, of course, is a massive government. And I think in many ways, that's also a blessing because it's slower to adopt digital technology than maybe smaller nations such as the Netherlands or um, Australia or Estonia uh, have done. It means it hasn't maybe seen some of the worst harms yet. Then again, I mean, the Bill of Rights also has huge limitations. It, it only applies to the federal government. And um, that's not where a lot of the risk of AI development is coming from. So it's great that we have that Bill of Rights. It's great that we have the executive order, but we also need actual enforceable law. And that's uh, where we need to look to Congress for. Yeah. Do, do you think the, the AI Bill of Rights might serve as a, as a point of agreement between the, the two sides of the debate in that perhaps uh, if, even if you are, you're against regulation of private entities, you might be interested in limiting the, the powers of, of the government? And so the, there might be some, some, some agreement there. Yeah, I think that the Bill of Rights can feed into potential legislation and be a good starting point. I definitely don't think it would be sufficient just to put that on the books and as hard law. One thing I worry about is that we will ask the US government and we will ask the EU to regulate uh, these fast-moving uh, technologies, including AI, at a time in which they are becoming less and less functional. A lot hinges on what happens in the next uh, US election. And I imagine that this election could have a, a pretty large impact on which direction uh, U.S. policy takes on, on the AI side. 
do you share this worry? What do you think? Is, is there anything we can do about it? What stance should we take towards this? Should we just keep our heads down and keep working on what's in front of us? Or AI policy so far is remarkably bipartisan. And I think there is a bigger cultural shift around sort of the role of big tech in, in US life and how people are reevaluating and assessing that, that I think is shared on both the Republican and the Democratic side. And I think that gives me some confidence that even like the, like the, even if political polarization continues on the trajectory that we see now, we're able to get to some agreement on core AI governance decisions. But it is definitely a worry that um, democratic states struggle to um, pass measures that are necessary and that their people want. I mean, there, we've, there's been a lot of polling that came out around AI governance and risk, where you see overwhelming support from the public to tackle this issue and to have government step in. So um, I think there there is that democratic base. Uh, so I think it, yeah, we we really do need Congress to to act upon that, but it is a risk. One impression I've gotten from people working on the technical side of AI safety is a certain skepticism about, about policy work. But also my impression is that this skepticism has kind of dissipated uh, lately where uh, people on the, on the technical side of AI safety, safety have become more interested in policy work, perhaps because the field is moving so, so, so quickly and many complicated technical schemes to make AI safe might not be, be done in time. Um, do you share that impression? I do, yes. I think there, there is a, a re-evaluation, I think, of AI policy and how quickly there can be cha- change can happen and, and what can be done there. I mean, maybe I, I'm going to try and defend the other side a little bit in that I think we also do need moonshots in AI, technical AI safety, where I think there, there is a role for government here to say, this is what we need. Like, these are the features that we're looking for in, our, in AI development. Um, that doesn't exist at the moment. Go and find out how to do that. So that you take away, I think, some of the uh, talent and focus from the current paradigm, which is just scale, 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 towards things like you know the concept that Stuart Russell has talked about in terms of making sure that AI systems always apply a degree of probability towards um, what they know about the world around them and about what humans want. There might be many other approaches that we haven't thought of or haven't developed that could be developed. But I think to some extent, you would then need to make sure that that thinking happens outside of um, the labs that are all sort of stuck in, in this one paradigm. There's, there's obviously a, a co- collaboration here between the technical side and the policy side, where the policy side is interested in implementing some solutions that the technical side comes up with and, and so on. Say you're, you're interested in working on AI safety in general, perhaps your, your early career. Where should you go? Where, where should you start? Uh, would you go to the government? Would you go to academia? Would you go work at one of the AI companies? My recommendation is go to government um, because governments have woken up this year, 2023, to the AI governance and they'll be hiring lots of lots of people and they need to build that expertise and they will probably need external people to come in to help them build that. Whereas I think the government, the companies already have AI safety teams. So in a way, like your added value is going to be, I guess, more limited. Um, and I mean, I think that you could say that uh, the same for 
academias for governments like i think it's it's also really important that that field grows um and that more and more people take think about these challenges um and i sort of put the ai safety institutes that were announced this week in the, the one in the us and sort of the the expanded one in the uk as also really good examples of places where you can work that are sort of academic government crossover places i feel that where it it made a lot of sense to work on AI safety within companies as they were developing these very these systems and they were just like a lot of the underlying technologies the, the neural nets were just developed and released and discussed i do think that since february march this year when you saw the financial times do analysis of about how many billions of dollars are now being poured into the AI um, industry, the profit motive will have overtaken, I think, uh, the dynamic in many of those companies, perhaps not all, but in many. And I think that means that you do need to think carefully about whether your role in a company is is the most effective way to work on on safety uh, of these systems. Uh, We can compare this to big oil or big tobacco, where People that work for Exxon or Shell will be really concerned about climate change on an individual level, but that doesn't mean that they can change the way that those companies operate at the end of the day. Um, And I don't think we can expect AI companies to be wholly different beasts where somehow employees in that industry will be so much more powerful than employees in other industries that have a clear profit motive. So... With that in mind, I think my recommendation would be to to join the government or to research as an academic. Let's talk about kind of which risks we see from AI and whether we have the the tools, the kind of regulatory tools necessary to address these risks. So if we start with something like um, individualized persuasion, where you can you can target a person and you can say, okay, the reason why you should, and, and this person might be a, a part of a very small group, the, re, the reason why you should vote for, for this candidate is such and such. And this has been infinitely kind of A-B tested to be perfectly tailored to this particular person. Do we have the tools necessary to, to regulate something like that? We, I mean, I think the, the EU AI Act attempted by prohibiting uh, subliminal manipulation I think nobody really knows what the word subliminal means and where um, this begins and ends. So I think that's a real challenge. I think to some extent, any law is going to have vague concepts. There are prohibitions that you can probably lay down that will address some of this. It will, you will often want to do this at scale, I would think, to have, um, if you have a political motive in a democracy, you need to convince a lot of people. If you um, have a profit motive, you want to sell a lot of products. So uh, your your manipulation needs to affect a lot of people, which makes it potentially easier to detect um, or enforce. Hopefully not everyone is trying to manipulate other people. So the, the number of potential uh, actors that you need to survey might be relatively limited. Um, which makes me cautiously optimistic that this might be possible. It's funny that you should mention uncertainty about the meaning of certain words in legislation. One frustration I've had in in trying to read some of this uh, proposed legislation is just how much hinges on uh, definitions of reasonable and proportional and necessary in a democratic uh, state or country and so on. Is this just, is this just, this is just how law functions or 
could we could we be more precise in our in our uh, legislation or would that have some downsides yeah no i think we really don't want to be more precise like my pitch here is for constructive ambiguity especially with a technology that's so in flux like we need to lay down what what we want and what we are worried about and yes we want to give companies some certainty so i mean there is a, a balance to be struck but we also need to make sure that uh, it isn't so specific that if a, a new type of risk emerges or or something we hadn't anticipated that we really have to go all the way back to the drawing board um, and a lot of legislation that like lays down a norm that people will try to respect uh, like we don't rely on courts and judges and and, and fines for most um, rule abiding behavior and I think that is really critical in that once these concepts are laid down and people start interpreting them, um, most people will make the right call and will behave in the way that the lawmakers have intended them to behave. Um, and it's going to be a very small minority that will face enforcement action. Um, and that means that the law will bring about the intended effect. Do you think we have the regulatory tools necessary to prevent something like AI-enabled bioterrorism, where you use Uh, perhaps a next generation language model to tell you how to synthesize something uh, that's that could be very very dangerous to to all humans with the current generations of systems where, where the jury is still out to what extent they they amplify these risks uh, and I think a lot of research is currently being done I saw a new report from Rand come out this week as well uh, where I think they compare googling this information versus using Uh, a large language model, how much closer or easier does it then become uh, for uh, a non-specialist to develop a weapon like this? The executive order also um, mandates more oversight of DNA synthesis um, companies. And I think that's really, that, that seems like an obvious policy measure to take that um, you really want to um, develop. That is the first time I've seen any regulator anywhere tried to attempt this so we're not there yet in any shape or form and um we know both like we want to make sure that i think governments improve their their understanding of their national landscape like where does where could bio risk emerge from in their country where uh where are the companies that could potentially build this i think to some extent this links to the open source question where if you've put guardrails on your model to prevent this information from or instructions from being shared with just anyone based on any prompt. Um, and you can put out a model um, in such a way that those guardrails can be easily removed through fine tuning, then yeah, that obviously amplifies the risks and that, that, that sort of presents a whole new range of questions. Yeah, I think the worry is that some future model will, will contain some tacit knowledge from its from its. Uh, Training that's not available when you, when you search on Google, it might be able to fill in the gaps uh, in in its guidance uh, of how to uh, synthesize something dangerous. Where do you think we might regulate this? So we we could regulate this by regulating the model itself. That's that's pretty um, kind of heavy handed, perhaps. We could regulate it by regulating these companies that uh, synthesize DNA, or we could perhaps try to monitor uh, wastewater for uh, what what uh, might become pandemics. Uh, do you have any thoughts about what, what might be the best, best approach for, for this? I don't have, I think, 
clear thoughts on where, like, out of these three options, for example, where we would want to put the heaviest focus. Um, and yeah, I think things like the RAND study, like, are really critical at this moment to try and really nail down where we think, like, how this, what is the chain of events, and how can we, how can we best address this? What about something like? rogue AI. And here I'm thinking about AI that becomes more like an agent and less like a tool, perhaps develops motives that we are that we didn't intend to encode into it. Perhaps it begins seeking power in ways that we uh, would like it uh, not to. How, how can we how can we regulate this? How can we uh, what kind of regulatory tools do we have available for this? Yeah, so here you see the um, I think there's been a lot of discussion also within the partnership uh, for AI um, on like, can you restrict autonomy um, and can you restrict, for example, um, linking some of these models to external applications? Um, or if you do that, do that in a phased way after you release the model, um, don't allow sort of any random entity to build something and integrate it with your system, but um, like do a risk analysis and assessment before you, you introduce that. I think there are ways to to limit this and, and to mandate that as well to try and try and address um, yeah these emerging risks from from increased autonomy. What do you think about open source? Um, how can we regulate this? Because the, I, I I've, as I see it, there's a specific challenge here where open source is decentralized. It, it might be models up, uploaded to to decentralized networks by uh, autonomous people. There's no you can't go knock on the door of uh, of some company that produced the model necessarily. How do you regulate, regulate open source AI? I find that possibly the toughest question in AI governance at the moment, how we deal with open source. Maybe just taking one step back, I think we need to identify what drives various people in the debate around open source. I think some people are really concerned about regulating open source because they're worried that it will limit innovation to US private sector companies and potentially Chinese companies but it will cut off the rest of the world from participating. So that, I think that's one group of people. And then you have a different group of people who are worried about um, surveillance states and sort of um, how much control the, the, the private sector would have if, if you wouldn't open source um, these systems. And on the other side of the debate, you have people that are really worried about, let's say, North Korea obtaining a system and using it to attack critical infrastructure or people using a model to spread disinformation and sort of ensure that there's a breakdown of truth and having any random um, terrorist group obtain a system um, to potentially uh, build a bioweapon. So I think, yeah, I think we need to separate out those motivations because I think there's a lot you can do in policy um, once you understand um, how you can maybe meet some of the objectives that some of the groups in this debate have. I would really recommend everyone who hasn't done so to read the paper by Meredith Whitaker, the president of Signal, that came out a few weeks ago, where she analyzes, for example, how the push by, by Meta for open source is probably commercially driven and is an attempt to capture the, uh, could be an attempt to capture the open source ecosystem um, in a sense that you could get lots and lots of developers to contribute their knowledge for free and then try and build a, a proprietary product on top of that once that community has offered things that are almost ready to be built into a product. I think she highlights there as well is sort of how um, the term open source 
because of its connotations in software, where it's just one guy writing an open source program and, and everyone feels like really like all this sympathy towards this one sort of person fighting fight, um, big tech, uh, that positive connotation is used in, in open source AI where uh, the situation is very different because you need a lot of compute and you need to spend quite a lot of money to train any system to evade regulation um, where open source, and I think she calls it open source washing, um, is, is used as a, as a way to fight back against the AI Act, for example, and say, no, 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 we need a, a world that's free and open. Therefore, we shouldn't possibly touch open source as that argument tends to be driven by, um, yeah, the likes of Meta that sort of have a commercial or business plan underlying it rather than um, being motivated entirely by principle. Then on sort of the actual policy question of, of what, 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 like, what we do about it, I think we need to be very specific about the kind of models that we're worried about. I do think we need to impose restrictions here in that um, we don't allow people to open, like we've been through this in many ways with nuclear technology, where um, a lot of information around how to build a nuclear bomb isn't something that you're free to share if you're a nuclear physicist in the United States um, for good reason. And I think some recognition that there is, yeah, that there are models out there that that shouldn't proliferate, I think, at least from FLI's perspective, is really, really important. But I think once you strip down the debate to its essential components uh, and understand who's driving what, I think there's also a lot of um, common ground that can be found between various players in the sense that many models that are that people are worried about being restricted probably wouldn't face any restrictions. I think we most people in this debate can probably agree that the major players shouldn't be able to offload the risks that they pose to society um, just by putting something out as open source. Um, so I think there is maybe more common ground that can be found here than, than we see at the moment. What about the worry about centralization? I mean, we, we could imagine a, a possible future where there's one or two, a, a duopoly perhaps, of models that you can access and... Perhaps there's a there's a partnership between the government and and the companies running these models, and you this is this all begins looking very uh, autocratic. Perhaps what can we do to prevent that? I think that's where we need multilateral cooperation. Um, I think people have talked about a CERN for AI. Uh, I think bringing together various researchers um, and governments working on, on this problem and ensuring that there is sufficient transparency around that and governmental oversight um, and participation, I think is is really key in trying to tackle this issue. Um, but there is definitely a tension, right, between trying to limit harms from ever more powerful systems and, like, openness and giving everyone an opportunity to use those systems. I mean, um, to some extent, you can't exactly have it both ways. Um, so if you are going to limit the, the number of models or, or sort of how powerful they are, then I think doing that in a controlled environment um, that is as transparent and uh, democratic as possible is, I think, what I hope um, future summits, for example, the one in South Korea or the one in France, uh, will be exploring. What are your favorite regulatory tools where a regulatory tool might be something like saying that a company needs to, um, do, to do red teaming and then uh, give the data about that red teaming to the government? I think my favorite uh, is risk identification. 
we saw, for example, with Facebook and their social media uh, newsfeed algorithm that they knew that this caused um, mental health issues with young women and girls, but that risk and that effect was never disclosed to the public. And I think by mandating risk identification, um, you at least have a basis that you can start to have a discussion about and you can have policymakers, but also just the general public and journalists ask questions and discuss. And in many ways, the terms and conditions that uh, of the major players highlight a number of risks already. Uh, and it basically says you can't use our system for political campaigns or you can't use our system for X, Y, Z. Um, and I think that's a good start. Um, so it's, I think in my mind, it shows that this regulatory tool is a, is a possible regulatory tool. You can take that inspiration from the terms and conditions that exist. But you want, I think, that list to be as comprehensive as possible. And I think here there is a real tension between what is in societal interest and in all of our collective interest and what's in the company's interest, right? Because if I was a lawyer representing any of the companies, I would say the last thing we want is a list of possible risks online, uh, because that means that we had evidence of that risk materializing and we could be held liable for it. Yeah, I see the resistance, but I think that is something we, we really do need. Um, and I think it's, it's, it, in my mind, is the most important thing companies doing a frank risk assessment and sharing that with all of us. And then the enforcement mechanism is liability. So if they are aware of some risk and they've published that they're aware of this risk and then they, they still push ahead, then they can be legally liable uh, with fines or what, what other consequences might there be? Well, I think we don't maybe even have to go there because I think if you've like shouted about the risks that you see and you've been forced to tell everyone about them, you're going to do a pretty good job mitigating them, right? Because you still want to sell your products and you still want to have people trust your products. So, um, and you also just want to avoid a PR disaster. So I think you're going to want to uh, really tell your safety team to work twice as hard now you've put that on the internet. Yes, I think ultimately, yeah, you also want liability. But my hope is that ha having forced to disclose this and having forced much more detail than maybe um, the current safety plans of the companies provide, yeah, you, you motivate these companies to change course. How much do you think companies are, are motivated by avoiding PR disasters versus avoiding, say, fines? I mean, given how much money is, is sort of earned in this industry and sort of um, at least how much investment is being attracted, I would think companies are going to be largely motivated by um, PR risks and reputations. The EU AI Act, interestingly, provides for fines that are 4 to 6% of annual turnover. Um, so that means that, yeah, that the fine sort of is substantially larger if you're a substantially larger company um, and means that the, a lot of the rules have teeth. And yeah, so I think I guess my answer is like it depends on how you structure the fines. I think reputations do play a large role in, in company behavior. What do you think of buck bounties? So setting aside of a bag of money and giving that bag of money to to the person who identifies a vulnerability in the system. I think that's great. That's <laughs> yeah. It seems like it's something that's that's pretty easy for the companies to accept also. And perhaps that's why the, some of them have, have done so. So perhaps that's also a, a, a point of, of agreement uh, between many sides in the, in the debate. What do you think about governments subsidizing AI safety work, specifically AI, uh, technical AI safety work? I think that is also really important. I think 
we do need to think very carefully about where we want AI development to happen and how. And I see a much greater role for the public, for democracies, for public debate to define like what we want out of AI development. And also, I mean, that should then dictate what you subsidize. And maybe that doesn't mean that you actually subsidize people, but you also bring that into an AI safety institute, for example, that is part of the government. So you may want to go a lot further than than just providing a subsidy, as well as um, multilaterally or nationally defining certain challenges that you set to the AI industry or to researchers for which you potentially offer a reward if met or or, or a monetary incentive. Um, yeah, I could see those kind of structures um, beyond just sort of expanding the number of academics, which I think would also be good uh, to make sure that this is an issue that doesn't just happen at a few a limited number of faculty, but truly becomes a, a global research problem. There's also the problem of distinguishing between safety research and capabilities research, where something like uh, reinforcement learning from human feedback, which is what basically allowed ChatGPT to, to work as well as it, as it, as it does, that, was, uh, that originated as a safety project, but it became something that, in my opinion, advanced capabilities. So we would have to be careful about what it is that we subsidize, how we, how we test, how we judge whether this is uh, pushing safety forward more than, than pushing capabilities forward. And that's, that's, a difficult, that's a difficult call. Yeah, so there was an event organized the night before the summit with Stuart Russell, where he really highlighted that there's a difference between making AI safe and making safe AI. I think that is a really essential truth, at least in my mind, that we haven't done enough with. Like, it is one thing to have companies just build whatever AI product they want to and then be like, oh, we, oh, we forgot about the safety department, but thank God they've got a third floor. Let's call them and ask if they can do some reinforcement learning by human feedback or some other measure that they can put on top to make it safe. And starting, and I mean, Stuart's claim here was this is never going to work. And I, I think I, tend to agree with him. Whereas the alternative is making sure that you define from the outset, okay, we need something that's actually safe and it needs to meet these specifications. Um, and this is therefore what we're going to build. And I think that's where you need a, a sort of nonprofit perspective or a government public sector um, to step in um, because incentives might just be different in a private sector to um, that make it harder, not impossible, but harder to take that approach. What do you think of compute governance as a framework where compute governance might mean something like putting a cap on the largest training runs you, you can do uh, for advanced AI? We compare these various policies to say, okay, we need compute, uh, computational power caps um, and, and also different requirements if you exceed certain levels, uh, including sort of a hard cap uh, for the highest tier. I think this is a really important part of the conversation that we and we definitely need both monitoring. I think at the moment, governments don't even know who has a lot of computational power in their country. Uh, so I think that that's a really important first step. Uh, we also need to make sure that we think about and discuss with hardware manufacturers, like how do you build chips and how can we potentially ensure that chips can be like the most advanced AI chips can be turned off? Um, and, and how do we, we, are there hardware options that mean that um, you don't know what the system is doing and you don't sort of interfere in, in sort of uh, people's privacy, but you are able to um, shut off 
particularly large clusters of the most advanced um, technology. I mean, the question looming over this is, is it going to be enough or is it going to be durable? Probably not. And also, is it going to be long lasting when computing hardware becomes better and better at some point? you'll be able to train a, a model that has the same capabilities as GPT-4 on a gaming uh, gaming PC? I feel that on the one hand, you see, um, and taking another Dutch example, because ASML is, is there as a, 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 the producer of the, the, the chip manufacturing um, machines, They were always sort of a commercial company selling to China, selling to the US, selling to anyone who would pay for their product. And suddenly, I think they found themselves in the middle of a, a geopolitical debate. Um, there's been an agreement reached between Biden, the Japanese and um, the Dutch government, um, because that's where most of the advanced tech in the supply chain comes from. And like suddenly their product became this hugely political thing that... Um, I think they needed to define policy around and sort of what, where there are limits. So I think it does show that even compute can enter a very different paradigm. Um, and that uh, is not a given per se that um, the way that the hardware gets developed will continue in the way we do it today. And, and we may want to reconsider that. And I think we need to buy ourselves a little bit of time. I think we regardless of what risks you see from AI development, there are some, like, I think we can all agree that there are many and they uh, deserve a societal response that we are not ready for yet. And I think that the fact that we are just at the beginning of developing a lot of legislation of educating policymakers means we just need to make sure that we have that time to put that in place. Um, so if Compute governance can help us buy that time until we figured out something that's more sensible. Then I think it's worth pursuing, um, even though it's not going to be durable. One reason it might be possible is because the supply chain of advanced chips is so uh, concentrated in specific companies like TSMC in, in Taiwan, ASML in the Netherlands, Nvidia, um, and and so there aren't many places that you you would have to intervene in order to. Con control um, in specific ways the most advanced chips. I think we should talk a bit about the ethics of technological transformation. So how do you how do you think about the fact that we might be rushing towards advanced AI without the agreement or without the consent of much of the world's population? So you have the leaders of the top AI companies uh, making predictions about advanced AI maybe this decade, perhaps ne next decade. And even though uh, this is becoming a, a more prominent issue, I'm, I'm sure that, the, that uh, my grandmother hasn't uh, developed a, a position on, on this. And so is it ethically okay to, to develop a, 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 a technology that transformational? I find this a tough question. I mean, do, is there an individual right not to be have your life transformed by a technology i mean i think that's that's difficult i mean if if you know we were living a long long time ago and someone came around with the wheel <laughs> we have to consult it you know that <laughs> i mean it does really make your life very different and you know you have to find a donkey and everything uh, <laughs> that, that, i'm not sure if i can see like this ethical baseline that like you should we should always have a global pull on any technological breakthrough but i think it 
different when there is a risk of significant harm to you, right? And I think that is what we're talking about in this case, where we have many of the leading AI experts put out probabilities that, that this could even lead to extinction. That puts us in a different ball game. And I think that is where, yes, there is an ethical responsibility on the part of the people developing this to make sure that um, they only do so once they get the go-ahead from other people. And I think that's not what we're currently seeing. Uh, and I think people have a right to be upset about this. I mean, I was uh, walking past the Pause AI protest at uh, Bletchley Park, where the UK AI Safety Summit was held. Um, and you, I mean, yeah, there is justifiable, I think, anger and emotion um, when it comes to yeah, the lack of consultation in, in some of this development. So, um, yeah, I don't think you have a pure right to be consulted on technological development. But, yeah, if it, if it leads to significant harm, I think there is a bigger case to be made. True. And I think that's the point I wanted to get to, that this, this might be different than introducing a new car or a new smartphone, where it would seem pretty ridiculous that you would have to consult everyone in the world before you. Actually, these technologies actually did change people's lives. but such a right couldn't couldn't kind of plausibly exist but when we're talking about a substantial risk perhaps of extinction then then the the, the game changes how do we then uh, involve people democratically in in these issues i think the the uk ai safety summit is a really massive step forward and uh, carlos on uh, another fli colleague uh, has uh, sort of met with a number of um, governments participating here um, that I think hadn't really thought about AI safety much before. And I think that is a really, really important step. Similarly, the the UN Secretary General has just announced a high-level advisory body on AI, and our board member and co-founder Jan Tallinn is, is on that. I think that's also a place where you see a lot of, like, there's a, it's a, there's a broad representation, people from all around the world, uh, very different backgrounds um, that are trying to grapple with risks from AI. So I think that's, I think, the beginning of setting up structures that are more global and, and, and allow for more participation. But we're a long way away from that. And I mean, you, we see it in many other debates. I mean, nuclear weapons is a, is a really good example in my mind where there are like lots of people that have, don't like, live in a country that has nuclear weapons, but if the great powers do decide to attack one another, they are going to suffer in, in, in a nuclear winter and they have no say over that and were never consulted. Um, so it's always going to be, I think, to some extent limited the extent to which we can properly consult everyone based on past examples. And I think we'll need to do better. And I'm, I'm hoping some of these structures, the UK trajectory, um, the UN Secretary General's initiative are going to like learn from past examples. But yeah, I'm skeptical that we'll reach perfection. What's the right model for global governance of AI? W what other organization could we take inspiration from? Here I'm thinking of something like the European Organization for Nuclear Research, uh, CERN, or maybe the International Space Station, or some, some large collaborative global human project. Yeah, I think we need multiple features and maybe not in the same place. Um, I think I think a CERN is definitely something we need. I mean, I think we need to ensure that 
more of the development happens in a way that there is oversight over it and governments participate in it uh, rather than just in the private sector. And I see uh, a CERN-like collaboration that doesn't maybe have to be in a same physical location because you don't need like... Particle accelerator. Exactly. Um, and that kind of thing to happen in, in one place in Geneva. But I do think you want that to set up that kind of international infrastructure. I think CERN is an interesting example here because membership is not necessarily universal. Um, and I think to be able to move quickly, you will want to, I think, look at those nations that are um, at the forefront of development, um, that are exposing the rest of the world to the biggest risk um, and get at least them on board from the very beginning um, as you then expand and make sure that more people have that have a stake get to have a say. Um, you also need significantly more research. And um, here, the safety institutes seem really important in my mind. And I think you also want to make sure that you build more convergence. And I think, I mean, lots of people have been talking here about an IPCC for AI. Um, not too excited because, I mean, <laughs> look at climate change, right? I mean, if, we, if, if that's our beacon on the hill, like we're, we're, we're doomed. So we want to I want, we need to make sure that whatever thing we build to get more consensus around research uh, results and sort of what the risks are. And as we build that shared understanding of risk, um, that that moves a lot quicker and that we don't, as in the example of climate change, allow industry to take one or two papers, uh, or in some case, no paper, and invent dissent and polarization around climate science. I mean, we can't afford that in AI, given uh, how quickly the technology is developing. Um, so we also definitely need that function. And then we need an enforcement function. And I think that third function, I guess, is in many ways the hardest. Um, and again, I think we, we, we need to start from the countries that expose the world to the biggest risks rather than perhaps aim for universality in all 193 member states of the United Nations from the very beginning, because, yeah, it seems unlikely that you'll be able to act quick enough if you take, go down that route. Do you think countries will begin launching Manhattan projects for, for AI? So you could imagine the US president coming out and saying, we're going we're gonna to build AI and we're going to do so safely. This is what he's saying. And we're going to do this before uh, it's developed by a commercial entity. It seems a pretty risky proposition to me, but I don't know. Would you be excited for something like that? Or what would you think? I, I'd like to rebrand it the Apollo Project. The Apollo Project, yes. <laughs> uh, rather than the Manhattan Project, because that led to a bomb. Then again, I mean, to some extent, this is what we see from OpenAI, right? Or from Anthropic, like they have already made that announcement. So the question is, how would if this could be substantially safer and safety would be the the thing driving it? Then I think there would potentially be benefits. I think a lot of like the devil here would really be in the details and how this is done and under what conditions um, and how many precautions people are taking, how transparent it is. And I I'd much rather see. Um, this happen at a sort of CERN type institution or, or allowing multiple countries to work together than putting all of my eggs in, in, in the basket of one state or, or sort of one president. There's this dynamic in which, I mean, I think it's true to say that, that the leading AI companies right now were all founded with safety in mind. 
So Google DeepMind and OpenAI and Anthropic. Now perhaps uh, XAI that was funded by uh, Elon Musk. These companies were founded because uh, the, in response to others perhaps uh, acting irresponsibly. And so we are going to develop AI and we are going to do this, uh, this safety. So this is potentially a, a dynamic in which you step into the race and then you accelerate the race uh, unintentionally. So I would worry about that in, in the situation of an Apollo project for AI. But yeah, I can see the arguments for it too. Yeah, I mean, that would have to, if done well, and you manage to do that, and you do it in cooperation with other nations, you would ideally prevent like other rivals um, in the private sector from taking excessive risk. Um, I think you would pro- impose things like a hard compute limit on those players so that you make sure that the project you've carefully designed is the one that that sort of we, we're doing experimenting with rather than letting ever more entities um, impose ever more risk. We're, we're taking some things for granted in this conversation. We're taking for granted that AI is advancing pretty quickly and that uh, artificial general intelligence is, is possible and that, that AI could be dangerous and so on. I imagine that when you, uh, in your daily work, you meet uh, people who are perhaps in politics for entirely different reasons and are quite skeptical around these issues. What do you, what do you say to them? How do you pitch them, so to speak, on the importance of AI safety? I mean, I think there's many examples that people can point to when they think about AI risk, and it's off. And most regulatory measures don't require you to think to believe that artificial general intelligence is possible or even or imminent um, as you design a response. Things like, um, for example, the issue, the regulatory measure we talked about, my favorite one, regulatory risk identification, is something that you probably want for most AI applications anyway um so often we like don't talk about very specific sources of risk and there's also many applications of ai that i think everyone can understand very quickly um and supports sort of can lead to existential risks for example the video we put out over the summer artificial escalation where um we discussed the incorporation of ai in decision support systems and that potentially leading to a nuclear exchange on the Taiwan Strait is a really good example of um, an AI application that we can build today with the technology we have today that could wipe us all out. Um, I, I think there's often a lot of common ground with the people I talk to about. Um, I do think something has changed, especially after Jeffrey Hinton left Google. Um, he met with um, the president of the European Commission, Ursula von der Leyen, um, we've had people like Joshua Bengio um, speak out much more clearly over the past um, few months. And I think the fact that some of the most cited AI academics um, are so deeply concerned about what it would mean if AI would surpass or equal human abilities um, means that I think policymakers are taking this a lot more seriously. And yeah, are engaging with this topic more deeply than they have done in the past. Okay, let's end by talking about autonomy in weapons systems. Why is it that militaries want uh, autonomous weapons? What is their perceived value? A speed, I think, is the, the biggest perceived value, speed and scale. So militaries feel that if an adversary, for example, would have um, 
a system that would move like would be autonomous, then they also need a system that's autonomous so that they can strike back at the same rate. Otherwise, a human could slow it down, and that would mean they would lose the exchange. Um, and soldiers are expensive. They need food. They need sleep. It looks very bad to have them coming back in caskets. That too. I mean, it, it can really undermine public support for a war if lots of soldiers die and come and and and, and as you say, come back in caskets and are returned to their family. That's what's driving a lot of interest in in the technology. How do you think autonomy changes the balance of power between uh, powerful states and and weaker uh, weaker parties uh, in in conflicts? I think what my personal view is is that it will likely upset this balance because what we've seen over the past several decades is that uh, entities like the United States, the Soviet Union, um, at the time. China are have a massive scale uh, and can be used that scale to invest in um, the, the advanced, most advanced fighter pilots, uh, the, the best tanks, and those are really expensive products that like smaller entities and smaller states can't acquire. Whereas with um, autonomous weapons, you could potentially have really small drones um, that are relatively easy to manufacture, or, or, or could even be built, can be bought commercially from Amazon and then adapted to um, have a military application where what you need to ensure that it sort of performs is uh, potentially also software, which is obviously easy to just copy uh, and doesn't cost you much. Um, and if, if, yeah, if you manage to acquire that type of capability and it's good enough, then the relative advantage of a big power and their scale and, and sort of capital investment is likely going to matter less. Um, so it's probably going to make smaller entities more powerful. So now, now it sounds like we can perhaps uh, save some money and we can pr protect ourselves and we can save the lives of soldiers. Uh, why is it that FLI is, is trying to, uh, what is it that we are trying to prevent here? Maybe you can paint us a scenario of what it would mean to have unregulated autonomy in weapon systems? So I think there's three major categories of risk that we're worried about or sort of concerns that we have around autonomy in weapon systems. One is the obvious one, which is the ethical one. Like, do we really, as, as a species, want to yield uh, decisions of life and death to a machine? Um, and is there something human about rage, waging war that we want to preserve? Uh, Paul Sharp, who's an expert who speaks a lot about this issue describes a situation where he was a soldier and he was on a hill in Afghanistan and uh, a young girl, uh, about six, seven years old, was sent by the Taliban to scout out what was happening around the hill. And under the international rules of war, she would is at that point a combatant. There's no age limit in the rules of war. So she should have been shot. And I think if, if he had been in an autonomous system, he would have shot the six-year-old girl. But he felt like Morally, he couldn't shoot her, even though she was giving intelligence about his position to the Taliban. I think that's a good example of where saying, okay, we can program the rules of war into a system might have limitations that we do want to think about very, very carefully. Then there is the concerns we have around accountability. Like at the moment, if someone commits a war crime, you can point to that person or you can point to that leader and you say, well, this person entities committed a war crime. But if you're a Ukrainian soldier or Russian soldier at the moment, and in that war you would activate a system 
uh, that consists of a swarm of, so let's say, 10,000 drones. And those 10,000 systems commit war crimes at scale. Um, and all, the only thing you did was press the button and you were under certain assumptions about what it would do. Can you really be held accountable for every single move for for this soldier that a system killed who was already raising his hands and by doing so became a non-combatant. Yeah, given that you're outsourcing, we are talking about autonomy, so you are outsourcing decision-making to these systems. And so perhaps, yeah, there's some uh, there's uncertainty around whether you can be held liable for, for the initial decision to, to activate the system. Exactly, especially if you're activating an autonomous submarine and the one you activated it several months ago um, and it's still out there, I mean... To what extent can we really point you and sort of uh, hold you accountable? And then I think there's a third category which I'm most concerned about, uh, which is around international security. And this is what most sort of keeps me up at night when thinking about AI and military integration is is to Taiwan Strait in the future, where I think there is a severe risk that both the US and China might deploy autonomous systems and uh, do so at scale, train those systems on classified data. Um, and and uh, those systems may be interpreting a ray of sunlight or the movement of another system as an attack when it's not an attack, and that leading to unintended escalation and a war that's fought at machine speed in several seconds, where um, you then almost have to retaliate because you've lost so much equipment or you've lost so many men. And I think that's a terrifying prospect, also because we know from civilian AI that it often malfunctions, and it's okay because you can see it and you can fix it. But like, if you in military situations, you probably have one shot and you can't really test it very well under battle hardened conditions. So you're going to have things that happen unintentionally. So that's one category of sort of security risks on the, the sort of other categories around non-state armed groups, terrorist groups. Um, we're now talking a lot about sort of the role of Hamas, the role of Hezbollah and having th- those types of groups. For example, giving them the ability to target a specific ethnic group, let's say all Jewish males between 18 and 22, um, that like is something I think you really want to avoid in, in because of in like concerns around international security, stability, um, and frankly the ability to commit mass atrocities. Um, so it's it, that's sort of why FLI is really concerned. Maybe to add to that. I think what we see a lot in the debate around autonomy and weapon system is a sort of self-ownership fallacy where people believe that they are going to be the only ones that have this or they will have the best one. It is a very persuasive argument when a soldier says, I've lost a fellow soldier in battle. I want to develop autonomy and weapon system and autonomous weapons so that I can save future lives and no soldier to go through my experience again. Uh, and that's all fine, especially if your experience was from because you were an American soldier fighting in Iraq and you were fa- faced with, let's say, ISIS that, that didn't have maybe the sophisticated capabilities that um, you are developing. But if, if you are faced with an opponent of, that has similar technological capabilities as your own, then I think you reach a whole different situation and you, 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 you reach the, those sort of risks of unintended escalation that quickly lead to a global war. And I think that's that's often not considered in this policy debate. 
we, we should also stress the unreliability of these systems. So we, we could talk about them perhaps analogously to, to a self-driving car that will uh, fail. I mean, human drivers and, and human uh, soldiers are also unreliable. But at least we are, reli- we are unreliable in ways that are uh, recognizable to other humans. Whereas these systems fail in, in, in quite unexpected ways. When I interviewed the, the autonomy expert, uh, Frank Sauer, he, he gave me some examples of adversarial inputs for uh, drone systems where you can paint a certain pattern on the side of a, of a car and it will be registered as something entirely different. And you can imagine what uh, bad actors might, might do with, uh, with uh, you know, painting this on perhaps your own uh, infrastructure such that your weapons attack yourself. and. Uh, all kinds of bad things could happen there. There are these problems with autonomy and weapon systems. How is it difficult uh, or why is it difficult to regulate these systems internationally? It's difficult because there is military advantages or military sea advantages. So I think that that's what makes it harder. I'm not sure if it's particularly difficult. I mean, I think there is a growing uh, group of nations that do feel that this needs to be uh, regulated in a new international treaty. And you see uh, the UN Secretary General, the President of the Red Cross, for example, to coming together several weeks ago to issue a call, uh, which is really quite unique, saying, okay, we need to have an international treaty or we need to have it negotiated by 2026. Um, and a resolution that tasked the Secretary General with identifying all the options that there currently are for regulation passed with, I think, six no votes and um, over 160 yes votes. Um, so I think that there, there is quite a wide range, like global consensus around the need to put in limits. I think there's disagreement about where these limits need to be. And I think um, there's also different proposals, like do we mandate a principle like meaningful human control, for example? Um, that you need to always have meaningful human control over your weapon system as a commander uh, in the same way as you need to abide by principles such as proportionality or distinction when you plan an attack on international law. Um, or do we look at, for example, a class of anti-personnel drones uh, or systems um, because systems that target military ships or um, naval ships or uh, tanks might be less problematic. So like, I think there's different avenues to go down. There are systems that attack military objects, for example, tanks or planes or uh, structures. And then uh, there are systems that attack people. Um, I think there is a difference here in that if, if your target profile is by definition a military target profile, chances that you're going to violate international humanitarian law are significantly diminished. And the ability to commit a genocide using systems that target structures or military objects is very different than if you are uh, targeting individual people based on features or facial characteristics. And that would really be the nightmare scenario, having a a swarm of drones flying around targeting specific people based on their kind of inherent characteristics. Say we get an international treaty, but China doesn't sign it, or maybe the US doesn't sign it. Does it matter? It does. And I think this is, I think, a critical, at least in my mind, a critical element that people often miss is that at the moment, there is no regulation around autonomous weapons whatsoever. Um, and you see states 
for example, Turkey will export autonomous weapons to many nations um, unrestricted. And it is also perfectly like okay to do so. Whereas I think that the risk that that poses to stability in North Africa, um, to other nations is significant. And I think those other nations have a like justifiable say in what happens when those kind of systems uh, proliferate. And I think that's why you need a norm. Um, and that norm will matter to lots of quarters of the world that are in the United States, Russia or China. So that's, I think, one reason why it's important. Another is if you have a su sufficient supermajority that signs a treaty, it becomes a norm. And you see that with the landmine treaty. Uh, the United States has never ratified the landmine treaty, but it does abide by it. It doesn't use landmines anywhere outside of the Korean peninsula. Um, and it made that announcement publicly because it was faced with a new international norm and um, that pressure went along with it. Even if a treaty is not signed by, by those three players, it still has value. I think it will also enable trilateral or bilateral agreements between those players. So you can imagine having a treaty in place and then China and the US meeting potentially behind closed doors and making certain agreements about what you can and cannot do in the Taiwan Strait that borrow from concepts of that treaty or that say, like, well, because this is a norm, we're going to try and have an informal agreement that we both respect without sort of going through uh, a big international fora uh, where we can't be seen to do this uh, or where, yeah, this would receive significant pushback. So I think, yeah, there's, this, there's significant value in having it, even if um, those countries don't sign. Mark, thank you for coming on the podcast. Uh, I've learned a lot. It's been a pleasure.